0: Well, good morning. If you would, take your Bible and turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Many of you have noticed my dear wife is not with me this morning and several of our children are out. I'll, I'll just start by saying that that wasn't an easy decision for Sarah to make, but she has not been feeling well for several days, I woke up this morning, and bless her heart, she was in the middle of a pile of laundry trying to get all of that going while being sick, and i just stay home. Um, so pray for her uh, if you would, uh, if you think about it throughout the week, that she would recover. And listen, the Clotworthy household doesn't run without Sarah. So we need her to be well uh, as an issue of first importance for sure. Well, if you would stand as we do, honor the reading of God's word as we begin again with John three sixteen. We've been talking about the reality that John three sixteen is one of the most misunderstood and misrepresented verses. Uh, I, I think out of I think the, the the case can be made out of all of of scripture because it's so widely known. Uh, it, it's I, I think mishandled so often, and we have to remember these aren't words that were meant for bumper stickers. These are the holy. Inerrant, inspired words given by the hand of divinity through the apostles and prophets, and here through our dear brother John. And we must reverence these words and interpret them rightly. So, if you would read with me here, starting in verse 16, we'll continue to verse 21. John writing here under the inspiration of the Spirit of Almighty God For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is God's Word to you and I today, beloved. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into Your presence this morning with such a weighty verse, and we ask that You would guard our time together, that You would give me the words to speak, not one word more, not one word less. Father, I pray that where I err, You would allow those things to fall away quickly, but Father, where Your truth will stand forever, that would You inscribe those things on all of our hearts, for Your glory, that we might serve You with diligence and joy. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated So we spoke of last week, the context of John 3.16 is a world that is fallen, that's broken. Relationally, intellectually, spiritually, the world is depraved and in need of the grace of Almighty God. The world is a fallen mess, and I don't need to illustrate that for you. I think we've seen that clearly here from the text, but it just so happens that you may have been thinking last week as I preached on John 3.16 as as the contextual issue and thought, oh great, we're going to be here for a while. Well, that's true. Um, but it, it just so happens that it's very important for us to understand the, the thrust of where John is leaning as we move into John 3.16, if we're going to understand this verse rightly, and that context is one in which we understand the world is radically depraved. That, that God created the world, yes, and for a specific purpose, to be the theater of the redemption that Christ would bring about and the triune God would accomplish. And He created that world good, but we have marred it by sin in Adam. And so that's an important thing that we would understand. It's vital to our interpretation. We, we'll come back to... In fact, turn to John chapter 1 quickly with me. And let's look at verses... 8-13, through 13, as, a, as a precursor, just as a reminder as we move in again to John 3.16. He was not the light, speaking of John, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him, but to all who did receive Him. Who believed in His name. He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So we there have even early on the picture that this is a dark world and the only hope is the redemptive work of the Spirit of Almighty God in our lives. We must be born again. Nicodemus says here in chapter 3, if we are to even see the kingdom of heaven, if we are to enter the kingdom of heaven, we must be born again. Without the regenerating power of God, we will not receive the Savior. And as it turns out, we won't rightly understand the verse that we are looking at this morning either. Without the regenerating power of God, I would contend with you this morning... What humanity will do with John 3:16 is not bring glory to God for all that He has done in the riches of His mercy. What we will do is we will merely fall into ideologies that God is sentimental towards the world. We will idolize His love while not worshiping the triune creator God. That's a very sad reality. I have a firm conviction and I hope that you share it. If we are going to rightly rejoice in the verse that is before us, we must understand the kind of love that is spoken of here. As John writes, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. If we're going to understand that verse in its totality, we have to understand the kind of love that John is speaking of here. I think what happens rather often is that we come to this text and it is quoted so often out of context. And so what we do is we load into this this verse, and many like it, our understanding, our conception of love. But in so doing... We make a monstrosity out of that which is majestic. We mar the meaning of this text by coming into uh, interpretive moves with, quite frankly, what can be stated plainly is a perverted view of what love really is. We live in a world of perverted loves. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Four Loves, and as he begins his work... He acknowledges in the introductory, in the preface to that work, that there is a difference between two loves, the gift kind of love, that is a giving sort of love, and the need sort of love. And I would contend with you this morning that I've heard John 316 preached more out of a bent of a need kind of love than a gift kind of love. That God comes to us needy. And He is laying before us the plan of redemption. And what He is waiting for is that His creation will respond rightly so that He can be loved. Friends, that is nonsense. Because God needs nothing. He is in the heavens and has done all that pleases Him. And He has perfect unity inside of the Trinity. And we'll see that a little bit later on. But we need to settle with the fact that to come to this verse with a kind of love, hearing that God is somehow fawning over the universe in a way that he's hoping to gain something from the universe that he didn't have before, is to totally misappropriate the language in this passage. I tremble at the reality. That so many people in our world have been loved with an abusive, need-centered, self-centered kind of human fallen love. That when they they hear the the words of John 3.16, that God has so loved the world, they can't even rightly understand these words. What a travesty. And the the greater travesty is this, not that there's that misunderstanding, but that so many pastors will perpetuate that understanding because I'm going to preach a gospel to you because I need something out of you. Friends, the reality is God is building his church and he doesn't need pastors to do that. And He has no need of us. He simply chooses to employ us and to use us in the furtherance of His Gospel as means to what He is accomplishing. But I promise you, in His demonstrating His love to the world, He's not needy. He is not needy at all. The the Bible is fluent in the language of love. Do Do you remember Moses in Exodus 34? And some of your Bibles are going to translate the word steadfast love here differently. But I want you to listen to how when when Moses interacts with God and God is introducing himself here in, in, in some sense, To the, I think, through Moses to the nation. Listen to the, the words that God speaks to Moses, introducing his character in Exodus 34, verses 6 through 8. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Some translations render that goodness. And we need to understand that the love of God flows out of his attribute of his goodness keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will in no by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the, their children's children to the third and fourth generation and Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and he worshiped Here is the God of steadfast love. And that that word steadfast love there in the Hebrew economy, in in the Old Testament economy, is the hesed love of God. The binding love of God. That's the kind of love that I think is emphatic in the narrative of, of Ruth. This kind of love that will not go away, that will not tire. And this ultimately speaks to us the kind of love that God has is a faithful, diligent, loyal love. We need to be careful, though, not to conflate this love with what we find in our verse today. It's what we find in John 3.16, that agape kind of love that, that John is heralding to us this morning is not less than has it love, but I think that it's it's more full-orbed than that. It includes the binding love of God, and we'll get to that at the very end today, but, but it's so much more of what He's demonstrating to the entirety of the world. In so much of our lives we understand God to be communicating His love in such a way as it's, it's human in nature. He's communicated to us in such a way as to understand Him in uh, experience. But, but far too often I think what we do is we look at the love that we experience horizontally and we read that into what it means to be loved by God. Now, the fact is that God is other than His creation. He is holy. He is above. Now, He is imminent. And we can praise God this morning that God is not far off, that in Him we live and breathe and have our being. But friends, He's also uh, above everything uh, other than what we have experienced. When you hear that God has so loved the world, I love the way that one writer, listen, there's not a lack of things to read about John 3.16, I'll tell you that. It goes in about every direction and I find that there's always helpful thought no matter uh, the admixture of error. And one dear brother wrote about the reality, and we'll get to this more later too, but the reality that, that when we hear God so loved the world, what do we tend to think about? We think that he has loved this just mass of people. And just from a distance, he's kind of thrown his love in that direction. Sort of like the rays of the sun beaming down on the earth. He's just shown his love. And oddly enough, that's true in some sense. But what is being communicated here is a particular love. That God sets his love on each individual uniquely. That, that when you say, for God so loved the world, you might as well be able to say, for God so loved Me. In fact, that's what the believer will say. We will read into this verse the reality that He is loving His people. Those that He has set His love upon. But here we need to see, uh, above anything, that this kind of love expects nothing in return. This is not the self-centered, needing love. This is gift love. This is God moving in a particular direction for a particular purpose. It's why I I find so often that the theologies of our day are so wrong. We've talked about this at length, but a, a theology that says that God looks down the tunnel of time and if you raise your hand and you make a decision and you do all of these things, then God places His love upon you. Well, then I have the question, is that kind of loving a gift love or a need love? It's a need love. If God has to look down and see any anything in us to love us we have marred the love of God God loves the world and I do believe here that he is speaking of the world and we'll parse that out in the coming weeks and I think you have to be careful with that but But here, we have to understand as we lean into the text that He's not coming to the world in any sense needy. He's not conditioning His love based off of anything that you do. I'm afraid that far too many people misunderstand the love of God in their Christian life in such a way that when they are reading their Bible and they're attending church regularly and they're not given to a a besetting sin, they're having victory in, in their life over those areas, then they are thinking, boy, God really loves me today. But that is to mar the love of God. God loves you just as much on your worst day as He does on your best day. And in fact, your best day is dependent upon His loving you apart from the conditions. And that's the kind of love that we find here in this particular passage. Not a love that is needy, but a love that is divine. And giving Lewis goes on to explain the four loves being one of desire and delight or eros, that kind of passionate physical expression of love. Family affection being storge, friendship, philia, and charity, the servant love, which we find here, agape. But friends, can I tell you this this morning? I wrestled with the Latin this week. I wrestled with the Greek this week. I wrestled with the Hebrew this week. And I came to a conclusion. The love that is being expressed here goes beyond our lexicons. It goes beyond our dictionaries. We must not seek to academically learn the love of God, but we must learn the love of God here emphatically in light of the cross. We must linger there at the cross all of our lives and gaze upon the reality that the only begotten Son of God has been given as an expression of the love of God towards a sick and dying world. We must inquire there again and again and again every time that we find ourselves disbelieving that God can love us. We should not run to to BDAG one of the, the premier Greek lexicons, we should run to the cross because it's only there that He can convince us in spite of all that we are that He has in fact not come to us needy but He's come to us, beloved, triumphant in the cross. He's come there to declare that there is no cost that He is willing to forego to redeem us from the fallen reality that we find ourselves in in Adam, it's only there that we find the full expression of divine love that can redeem us and our fallen loves. Consider this love here. I believe well, to consider this love, we need to we need to remember the economy of John and how he writes. And I want to take you back. I know we spent many weeks there, but I want to take you to back to First John, chapter four, and there we find. 27 times that he mentions love John is a poet he loves to talk about light and darkness he he he, he has a vast array of expressions but but love seemingly is at the core that our affections um, would be met with the affection and the kindness of God. And in, in chapter 4, verse, both, uh, both in verse 8 and verse 16, there is this expression that I think we need to think about this morning if we're going to understand John 3.16 rightly. And that expression, you'll remember, is God is love. God is love. Well, what does that mean? I think to understand what, 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 what God intends to convey by saying God is love... To understand that rightly, we have to understand what he doesn't mean. When the Bible says and when John speaks that God is love, he is not saying that love is God. He's not saying that we should deify love, which is an indictment that I think the modern church has done. We should not worship the love of God, but God Himself. And to confuse the two will lead again to where the culture is today, confusing God's love for merely warm affections for humanity and a kind of affection that gives way to impure lusts and that ultimately condones sin. But that is not what is being expressed here. Love is not God. God is love. Secondly, God is not only love. When, when, when John says God is love, he's not saying, well, God is only love. I don't even think that it's necessarily that that's chief. He, he's saying here, God is love, but he's also holy. He's also righteous. He's also just. He's also wise. This, this gets to the simplicity of God. That being that, that God is in, we can't, listen, when we talk about the attributes of God, God is so kind. to to condescend to us, to explain to us in finite terms how He relates to the universe. But we cannot divide God against Himself. When when God loves, He loves in a holy, righteous, just way. And again, His love emanates from His goodness. And here's the reality in the the final analysis is His love will be expressed in two different ways. One, in a... um, A complacent love, and again, that's a theological word, uh, meaning his special particular love for his son and his people, but also his goodness will be demonstrated in love in the expression of wrath against all that is against his son and all who are in him. So God's love is very dynamic, and, and when we hear God is love, we can't hear God is only love. I've heard so many times, well, God's love is unconditional. No, it's not. God's love has never been unconditional. There are two conditions that had to be met for you to be loved by God. One, someone had to live a perfect life before the living God outside of Adam. And two, that perfect life had to be given on the cross to atone for your sin. It is only in Christ that we ever experience the full-orbed love of God. So, when John says God is love, he is not saying love is God. He is not saying God is only love. He is also not saying that God in His love, that this love is only an anthropomorphism. Some people will say, well, God is just expressing Himself in a way to condescend to our reality such that we can understand Him. And I think that's true, but we go too far when we say God really doesn't have, we don't have any kind of understanding. No, I think that when the Word of God reveals something analogous, and every time we speak of God, again, there is some analogy there. But the reality is this, when God speaks, an analogous reality, it's a true analogy. It's true. This is real, genuine love that He has set upon. What I want you to come away with, God is, is, is not, uh, love is not God. God is not only love. God in His love, that is not just an anthropomorphism. What is being expressed to you and I through this one simple phrase, God is love, is this reality. That, the love of, that, that God being love distinguishes God's love from every other love that we've ever known. God's love is completely different from the loves that we experience. And friends, I will tell you that I have in my mind. My wife loves me very well. She tolerates all of my idiosyncrasies. She, she asked me the other day, she said, <laughs> this was coy. She said, how many, time, how many hours in a day do you think you're awake? I said, I don't know, probably 16, 18 hours a day. And she goes, okay. And I thought, man, what is she getting at? She said, how many of those hours out of the day do you talk to yourself? I just had to chuckle. Yeah, that's that's me. She knows me. She encourages me. Um, That's true. I've had grandparents, friends that have loved me really well. But all of those pale in comparison to what is being expressed here in John chapter 3. The reality for you and I is that in our best moment, when we really strive to love other people well, Our love always has an admixture of sin. It always has mixed motive. But here, God's love enters our experience in regeneration and and illuminates everything. The only reason that we can exist as a church is not because we came to the church with love that would bind us together. It's because of what Nicodemus has been asking about and what Jesus has spoken of, that we must be born again. And when we are, we abide in God and He in us, and so then we have this kind of divine love where we are able to love not for ourselves, but for the glory of God. And that's the kind of love that's spoken here. And we get to share in that reality. We get to start to... It's a communicable attribute. We get to start to learn the rhythms of walking in that grace one with another. So ultimately here, we find that God's love is essential to who He is. God is love means that love is not something merely that He does once in a while. That's you and I. You know, we love our kids on Christmas morning, differently than we love them when we get the bad report card. When the teacher's annoyed with them. When we're exhausted with their constant asking. But God is not like us. God doesn't fall from wrath into... He's not a God of passions in that sense. He doesn't swerve from one direction to the other. Everything that God does is essentially love because He is the embodiment of that reality. God's love is then... Essential to his nature, and it impacts all that he does. Secondly, God expresses His love in Trinitarian form. God manifests His love to us how by giving His only Son, and He reveals this to us in uh, by the Spirit. Think back again to verses one through three that we've been meditating on. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was, was, excuse me, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. God decreed that the world would be created through Christ by the power of the Spirit. And so ultimately, even prior to creation, we find the love of God. And, and there, in the triune Godhead, before anything was spoken into existence, and this is the point that I really want to drive home to you this morning, about the love of God. That the love of God existed perfectly inside the triune, triune God. That there's perfect unity, peace, peace. Symmetry inside of the Godhead in such a way that He needs absolutely nothing. Touching on the aseity of God. That He is of Himself and needs nothing. So God's love is perfected, not by us, but inside of His own nature. Inside of His own being. If anybody ever tells you God created the world because He needed someone to love Him. Think about the absurdity of that for a minute. There's a whole, what are we at now? 7 billion people on the globe just in our generation. Tell me this, how well are they doing at loving God? God did not create the universe that we might give Him the love that He needed. God created the universe as a theater for His redemption that He would express the love that only He has that needs absolutely nothing. Now, I want you to be clear when you leave today. Don't go home, I'm going to love people in such a way that I don't need anything. That's nonsense. Every one of us are needy people from the moment that we blink our eyes until the grave. We're all dependent upon one another. God is modeling for us, even in this room, that His triune love is far and away better than the love that we can show even in our best day to one another. The Father's love ultimately is set uniquely, though, on the Son. In chapter 3, look at verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. God loves His Son uniquely. And the Son has perfect love for the Father. Turn to chapter 14 quickly. In verse 31, Jesus speaking here, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love The Father. The Father's love for the Son in the Spirit is the infinite and eternal act of the entire divine life. And now think about this. How God loves Himself in inside of the triune Godhead is beyond our comprehension. Many different theologians have tried. Uh, Calvin and Augustine and throughout the ages. And as you read, they're seeking to understand and in one particular area how the Spirit relates to the love inside of the Godhead. Everything, every statement that I've read is kind of swing and a amiss. Swing and a miss because it's so far above our comprehension how the the love of God exists in perfect, absolutely sublime enjoyment there without any disruption. But I do think Robert Trail got close when he, when he, and he aims at how this should impact us when he says, where God the Father is the lover and God the Son is the beloved, who can tell what this love is? Here, faith must simply believe and adore and cry out, O the depths! Our joy in the love of God should not be to look around, but it should be to look at the triune God and and, and just be enthralled at the reality that God is perfected in His own love. Friends, we, we have to be very careful of thinking in any way that we are worthy of the love of God apart from the love that He has for the Son. But we have to be very careful to, to think of, and I think the church has erred in this way, to think because we have done something. And, and I've, I've expo- expressed this before, but, but uh, I've heard, I think, very well-intentioned people trying to instruct children. Now little Timmy. I hope we don't have Timmy's in the room today. Now little Timmy, if you obey the Word of God, then God is pleased with you and He loves you. Oh Timmy, God loved you while you were yet a sinner. Now you should obey, but you never will obey apart from the love of God. God loved you when you were at your worst. God, God loves you when, when, when you are in rebellion, friends. As we look throughout the Old Testament and we see Israel, and they're constantly rebelling against God. God never forsakes them. He never walks away from that covenant relationship. He never just, I'm done. In, in the full-orbed sense. He certainly gives them over to judgment and chastisement and all of those things, but even that is an expression of His love. So, so God's love is Trinitarian. It's inside of Himself and ultimately is then expressed here through Christ. It is also active in its display. God demonstrated, it demonstrates His love in every age. The act of creation again displays His love. The way He formed everything from nothing and pronounced it good so that we could enjoy it is an expression of His love. Before sin enters the world, God is yet loving. And love again emanates from His goodness. When, when Adam fell, God would have been justified to just show His wrath and obliterate all that He has created. But His love prohibited Him from doing that. Instead, from the very first moment that sin entered the cosmos, God still looks upon what He has done as good and He loves that. And He providentially rules and reigns over the universe in such a way that it expresses His kind love to all of humanity. There are two things I thought about this this week. There are two things that are sure in every sunrise, every moment, every cycle that begins anew. As we meditate on the reality that His mercies are new every morning, in every sunrise we should we should see two things this side of heaven. One, it is sure that man is still sinful, and two, it is so true that God is demonstrating His loving kindness. When you see a sunset in the morning, don't let that escape you. That God, that should enthrall... I think we've gotten so used to sunsets that, or sunrises that we're, we're, we're kind of just blasé about them. But the reality is every time the sun comes up, it is a declaration that God is showing His steadfast love to the universe. He is demonstrating His ability to love not because the... Creation is crying out in worship, but because He has intended to love from the very foundation of time. Now I want to quickly move through three categories that, that Christian theologians have thought of. Boy, I'm throwing the kitchen sink at y'all this morning. I hope you're taking notes. Uh, but I just I'm, I want to illustrate the point that if we come to John 3.16 and we interpret that kind of love to be the same thing that we were loved by our our favorite grandparent. We've missed the point. So there are three kinds of love that, that theologians have used to express the love of God. And some would argue that there are degrees of love. I struggle with that because I think one of the particular categories of love is over and above the other two categories. It comes not by way of the other two, but in spite of the reality of who we are. So... The first is His benevolence. That is His gracious love for people apart from what they deserve. Uh, His benevolence is His disposition towards the world. When, When John says God is love, he is saying in some sense to the entire cosmos, He is benevolent in His disposition. Our God is not the church curmudgeon. You know, the one that is sitting just on the edge of the pew praying that the pastor messes up on some theological point so he can nail him for it later, that's not our God. Our God doesn't behave that way. He doesn't have that disposition. He is inclined to be gracious, to be loving. If you are here and, 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 and you experience sunlight and all of those things, you're experiencing in some sense the benevolent love of God. His kind disposition Towards you. Secondly, we speak of his beneficent love, his gracious. Now, this takes his disposition and moves in the direction of his actions. His beneficent love expresses itself in action. He positively acts here, bringing rain on the just and the unjust. He allows even the, the most fallen to experience the, the joy of marriage and, and, and child rearing. He, he calls us to the goodness of work and labor. Uh, we feel as we go out today, we'll feel the warmth of the sun. We will enjoy music. We will... Um, enjoy many other different pleasures. We will eat that which He has provided. That is His beneficent love. But all of these, ultimately, these kinds of pleasures, and and I would argue that the the cross is in some sense a beneficent love. Because all of these other things that are of the earth, pale in comparison to this one expression of love that is spoken of here in John 3.16, For God so loved the world, not that He just sat in a disposition, but that He gave. He acted. He moved in the direction of the universe. He sent His only... Friends, think about this reality. Jesus existed in perfect harmony, in perfect shalom, perfect peace, in heaven, and and their angels ministered to Him from before the foundation of the world. And yet He condescended... And came into this fallen earth and lived among. I think often about the reality. Have you ever been offended by somebody? Like they say something that is really ungodly and it just kind of grates against your spirit. You just kind of go, ooh, that's bad. How must Christ have felt his entire life, the holy second member of the Trinity, walking the face of the earth and yet? We never see that in his disposition. It's always one of love and kindness and moving in the direction of sinful, fallen man. So here in his in his in in his cross, we see the fullest expression of benevolent love. Romans chapter 5, again, for while we were still weak, the right time Christ died for the ungodly for one will scarcely die for a righteous person though perhaps for a good person one might dare even to die but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners Christ died for us and we have to ask the question how can that be how is it that that he can love you and I how is it that he came before you ever made and here's the problem A kind of theology that says, Cam, the day that you decided to follow Jesus, He loved you. Boy, that robs the Bible of half of the economy of what it speaks about the love of God. God loved Cam when Cam was in debt in his trespasses and sins. Gloriously, God loved Jay prior to Jay ever even knowing the name of Jesus. God loves every one of us who are in Christ prior to our conversion. The question then has to be how? How how do we reconcile the reality of where the motivation comes from for God to love in that way? That's not the needy kind of love that I'm aware of. That I've experienced here in a fallen world. So how can this be? How can He love sinners? Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And while you do that, I'm going to Get a drink. Ephesians chapter 2. Starting in verse 1. We'll get another little mini course in the depravity of man here in verse 1. Because of the great love which with, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ, by grace you have been saved, and you raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, so that at the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus in verse 18 of chapter 1 you'll you'll read these words that he wants us to comprehend that Paul wants us to comprehend the richness of his glory friends what i want to contend with you this morning is that his love towards those of us who are in Christ is ultimately a love that didn't come because of anything in us but only because of the glory of God which existed prior to the foundation Of the world. God loves us not out of how we perform. God loves us out of His own glory. When God loves us, He's loving us not because of who we are, but because of who He is. He's expressing the reality. Dallas. Can we agree, brother, that the glory of the love of God is that He puts up with you and I week in and week out, and that displays a whole lot of patience, a whole lot of wisdom, a whole lot of divine attributes that you and I don't don't have in perfection. God is is demonstrating His love towards people. Listen, can I tell you something as a theologian this morning? One thing I know for sure is that the church has had the primary doctrines right throughout the church age, but we have always wrestled with theology. And I think some people, especially from our bent at times, think, well, God loves us when we get our theology right. That's wrong. God loved you while your theology was in the ditch. And that was demonstrating the glorious nature of how He loves. Now that shouldn't encourage us to have bad theology. It should encourage us to think deeply on who God is. But here we see His love doesn't flow out of anything in us, only in Him. And I think this is why decisional theology has to be abhorrent. Because ultimately we make the decision, the condition for which God loves instead of the condition of the love of God being the very goodness and glory of God. God does not love out of what we do here on Sunday morning. He loves out of His infinite mercy. And this leads to the final... So God loves out of His beneficence, His benevolence, in His acting, leaning into the universe, and finally in His complacent love. And that's not a smug indifference. That means a special, unique love. And this is the love that comes over and above, I think, that of beneficence and benevolence. And it finds its full expression, not in you and I, but in the person and the work of His Son. He has always, I think we have to understand this, God doesn't consume the the universe in His wrath because He always intended the universe To be the theater, again, the place where where He would demonstrate His love towards sinners and where His Son would be glorified. The reason that He tolerates the sin that is in our culture today is because out of that culture He is still redeeming people into His kingdom and bringing glory to His Son. And He has a unique love that is placed on Christ. And here is what I want you to hear if you've heard nothing else of the love of God this morning. It's this reality. That His love for His Son is the only chance in a special form that we have to really experience the full love of God. It's only being in Christ that we ever experience the full orb love of God, which I think is what, what John 3 goes on to contend in the rest of what he is saying here. It's only by loving Christ, it's only by being found in Him that we ever experience the love of the Father. John 14, verse 21, whoever has my commandments, Jesus speaking here, and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Love is essential to God's nature. It's triune in its form. It's active in its display. And then finally, it's freely exercised by Him alone. Some of us might wonder, well, how in the world, if we don't choose Him, if His love comes to us merely through His kindness, how does that work? work. I think Calvin is helpful here. He says, there is no drop of goodness, wisdom, righteousness, power, or truth which does not flow from him and which he is not the cause. I think James said it this way. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift, every perfect gift, that includes love, is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own Will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. That we should be a kind of first fruits of His creation. So where does the love of God in our lives come from? It comes because of God's divine decree. And if you're here this morning and you're thinking, I'm not sure about that. I would encourage you... That one of God's kindnesses to you this morning is to be here to understand and hear that His love is far and away different than the love you've experienced anywhere else in your life. That's one of His decrees, that you would be under the preaching of the gospel of God. You need to understand that you can't bargain far too often I hear testimonies like this. Well, Well, I made a deal with God. That is not how redemption works. God moves unilaterally in our direction. He exercises His love according to His own plan for His own gl- glory. His love is at the heart of who He is and His essence as being triune. His love is displayed then freely by His mercy. And, and here's what we need to see. To some people, throughout, throughout the human history, He has displayed His love By showing beneficence. By just having a disposition of being kind. And and that beneficent love is never really static. And so he's benevolently loved the entire universe. He he has loved that unbelieving neighbor. He has loved that pagan who we go to work with. He he has demonstrated His love in that He has not consumed that which is unholy, but He has allowed it to exist and thrive in some physical earthly sense. He he has demonstrated His love freely in His grace in those ways. But beloved, the, the declaration of this verse is that He's loved the world more uniquely in His complacent love by sending His own Son into the world to be the propitiation for our sins, for all who would call upon His name. He is so well pleased in the works of His Son that all who call upon His name, He redeems them in His Son. And so the question should never be, well, that doesn't seem fair. The question should never be, has God loved me? Because God has loved every person in this room. The question, if you are here today, if you are breathing, if you likely will eat later today, if you enjoy friendship and family and fellowship in some sense, God has loved you. And it's, it's, here, here's what we do as humans. Here, let me illustrate how sin How sinful sin is we woke up this morning all of us mostly in air-conditioned houses in fairly safe neighborhoods Uh, we come in here and we get the enjoyment of one another we have the joy of raising our children of uh, of praying for one another all of those things of eating a meal and yet we'll go throughout our day forgetting to thank god for a list of those things and in some sense that's cosmic treason not to be thankful Oh, we'll take those things for granted. We, we take our spouses for granted all the time. We take our our, our our work. We grumble about those things. When God is the one who has loved us by providing them and, and showing his kindness in those ways. And again, friends, what we have to remember is that God hasn't loved the world in a way that it's just, it's just a glob and he's... he's just kind of th- hurling his love out there, hoping something happens. So God loves uniquely. And so he's loved the entire creation. But here's the question. If you want the fullness of the love of God, if you want to experience the joy of knowing divine love, love that supersedes all of the other love, love that supersedes the joy that comes in love in marriage, in love with children, in loving our friends, in loving those that we work with, if you want to experience uh, divine love and love that is not just temporary, beneficent and benevolent loves are temporary things. If you want to experience love that is eternal, the question is not, has God loved me? Because I promise you He has. The question is, do you believe the Gospel? Have you placed your trust? And that's what, we'll get to the word believe here. And I don't want to move too quickly. In coming weeks we'll get to the word believe. Not today. But the question isn't, Have we merely agreed that Jesus came and lived? That's not saving faith. Have we placed our trust in the finished work of Christ and that alone? Are we in Christ? Have we turned from sin? Do we believe upon Him? Do we have a relationship with Christ? It is only in Christ that we then experience that kind of complacent, redeeming love. So if you're here today and you've never turned to Christ in repentance and faith, Friend, I want you to know that that's the desire of every member of Providence Baptist Church, that you would come to a saving knowledge of Christ, that you would be born again, not through your decision, but by realizing that the love of God is so much more than you could ever hope or think of. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence this morning so thankful that you are a beneficent God. That in your mercy and your grace, you did not consume the world in your wrath, but you declared it to be good, and your creation, your work, the work of your hands is still good. If we find good in the world, it's come from you. And so we thank you for that beneficence. Father, we also thank you for the many acts of your benevolent love. We thank you that the sun came up this morning. It'll warm our tiny planet. It will uh, sustain life. And Father, ultimately that's You working by providence. Father, we, we thank You for the joy of relationship. We thank You for, for the joy of, of nutrients. We, we thank You for the way that You express Your love towards us in ways that we take for granted. And we repent of that, of that foolishness. But Father, most importantly, for those of us who are in Christ today, we come with gratitude for the special love that You have for Your Son. That by hiding in Christ... By, by coming to Him, by, by, by having fellowship with Him, that we are guaranteed to experience Your beneficence, Your benevolence, and Your complacent love throughout all of eternity. Father, help us not to be a people that idolize love. Help us not to be a people given to sentimentality. Help us to be people that clarify to a lost and dying world that has been abused by a false demonic version of what love is, the clarity of what your love looks like and help us to love one another in this body not out of our own frame our own goodness our own morality but help us to love one another out of the love which with you have lavished upon us that we would be called children of god father i just pray that you would cause us to be more loving as we as we contemplate as we meditate throughout the week on the love that is spoken of here in John 3.16, Father, I lament the reality that this verse has been so misunderstood. That, that, that preachers will stand in the pulpit, even today, I'm sure, and offend your holiness by speaking of this love and somehow casting dispersions on your character, seeking to paint you as, as a God who is needy. But Father, we know that you need nothing, and yet you've given us everything. Might we worship you in spirit and in truth, in light of that reality, in Jesus' name? Amen. 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 You would stand and say, There's something about that. <laughs>